So every weekend I'm challenging you to pull this book out. And, and really we have two things going on. The challenge, the challenge is to read through the Bible this year. Now, it may be that you started out with great intentions in January and <laughs> you're not there right now and you kind of, not, it's not happening. Well, you can, you can jump into reading through the New Testament. We're gonna, you're going to be hearing more about that uh, because that's something you can join us with. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. But the goal is different than the challenge. The goal is that every day you take this book and you ask God to speak to you and you read a portion of it and you reflect upon it and you pray and you say, God, what is it that you want me to find in your word today? What, how do you want to speak to my life today? And you know what? It doesn't matter whether you start today or whether you've been doing it for a year or three years or ten years. You can do that any time. So the goal is that you would daily take the Word of God and do that. So you, you may do it three times this week. You may do it every day this week. Whatever it is, but that you're reading and reflecting. That's really the goal. Challenge is to read through it. The goal is to read and reflect on it daily. Let me ask you a couple of questions. You've probably seen some of these disaster movies, um, Independence Day and some of these um, catastrophic America is being attacked movies. Imagine if the U.S. was totally destroyed by a foreign world power. Uh, and you are left behind, but you are exiled to a foreign land. Imagine walking around Washington, D.C. as you're being led out of this country into exile and seeing the Lincoln Memorial demolished. Imagine seeing the Washington Monument laying flat, broken in pieces. Imagine seeing the White House totally destroyed where one brick doesn't fit on another. You say, well, that'll never happen in the United States. Not with us. I mean, we're blessed by God. We're, we're God's people. We're God's nation. That's exactly how the Jews, how they thought of themselves. They said, well, we're God's people. That'll never happen to us. But, as you read through the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened to them. They were destroyed. And the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom was taken into captivity by Babylon, and the temple was destroyed. Their most holy, sacred place was destroyed. The walls were torn down, and Jerusalem was left in pieces. And that's the context of the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, he gets a vision of God, and it's an interesting vision. We're going to read through it a little bit in a minute. The interesting thing about this vision that he gets is he's not getting it while he's in Jerusalem. He's getting this vision of the presence of God when he's in Babylon as an exile. Well, what is the outline of, of Ezekiel? Simply this, and this is for those of you that uh, are care. Ezekiel, in the first uh, three chapters, you see the call. The God gives Ezekiel a call. And then we see the judgment in chapters 4 through 24 on the nation of Israel, that God's judgment is going to come upon them. And then 
in uh, chapters 25 through 32, uh, God has a word for the surrounding nations like Egypt and these other nations that are, that are pummeling uh, his people and that one day in, in, that he's going to judge them. And then finally, in, when you get to chapter 33 through 48, you see where God has a promise, a future for the nation of Israel. So that's kind of the essential background. Now, can I just give you an encouraging pastoral word on reading um, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? You read through that, and and they're difficult. Ezekiel may be one of the most difficult books in all the Old Testament to read through. And you're reading through some of these things, and you're saying, this is tough stuff, and it is. Don't let it bog you down. Don't let it discourage you. Just read it and get an overview of what's going on. There's a whole lot there. I mean, we're going to read a passage in a a moment that you're going to look at and go, what is he talking about? And the answer is, I have really no idea. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's not like you get a degree and you get a a degree in theology or a degree in Bible or learn Hebrew and you go, oh, now I know what that means. I know there are some people out there that believe that. But, I mean, essentially... This is, is, is prophetic, it's apocalyptic, it's, it's a different kind of literature than what we generally read. But it's important because it has a message. Now, Ezekiel was called uh, the watchman to the house of Israel. He was called to warn the people that judgment, the judgment of God, that God was going to use foreign nations to punish His people. That judgment was coming upon them. And that's what he was doing. He was warning them. You know, in uh, the World Wars, they used to have the air raid warden. And the air raid warden, when he knew that the planes were going to come in for bombing, he would run the sirens. And the sirens was a warning to all the people. And it was basically said, get in the shelters because the bombing is going to start. And that's essentially what what Ezekiel is doing. He's running that, that siren of God. He's that watchman. It's saying, the judgment is coming. You got to repent. You got to turn. And you know what happened? People said, no. Not us. We're God's people. In fact, they would cry out, the temple, the temple. In other words, they were saying, we have the temple. We have the presence of God. That'll never happen to us. These other nations, of course, but we're God's people. That's not going to happen to us. So here he is running the siren, and the people just say, the temple. We got the temple. We have God on our side. You know, during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln was purportedly asked if, if God was on his side. And he said this. He said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side because God's always right. And that's true. Now, Ezekiel's around 30 years old. He's been in Babylon for about five years when he receives this vision that we're going to look at from God. I want to read you that vision. It's Ezekiel chapter 1. And let me start reading it to you. Ezekiel. On the 31st day of the 13th month, while I was in in the Judean exiles beside the Kabar River in Babylon, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. This happened during the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. The Lord gave this message to Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, a priest beside the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. And he felt the hand of the Lord take hold of him. 
As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came forth four living beings. This is where, now up to this point, you go, okay, I'm getting this. This makes sense. This is where you run into those, those questions about what's he talking about. As I looked at these beings, these four living beings, I saw four wheels touching the ground beside them. <clears throat> One wheel belonged to each. When the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. When they flew upward, the wheels went up too. The spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So whenever the, wherever the spirit went, the wheels and the living beings also went. Above this surface was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli. And on this throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. From what appeared to be his, to be his waist up, he looked like a glowing, gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with, all, with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow, shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. Okay? Now, what is the glory of the Lord? Well, here's your definition of it right here. You can go ahead and try to explain that, but it was beyond explaining. He's using the best picture of what he knew and what he saw. And then he says this, When I saw it, I fell face down on the ground, and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. Now, notice this. The, the interesting thing, and commentators have brought this out about this, the essential thing I want you to see here is that he's getting this vision of the glory of God, but he's not in Jerusalem, and he's not in the temple. The temple's gone. He's in a foreign land. He's in exile. And there's the presence of God with him. Now, you, you say, well, why, well, why isn't the, the glory of God in the temple? Where, what happened to the glory of God? And, and, and he tells us, if you go to chapter 10, let me pick this up because he uses a similar picture of the, the wheels and, and the, the personalities and, and this one that's riding this heavenly chariot, whatever it is, and we believe it to be God, the presence of God. And he goes on to describe this in chapter 10. He says this, Then the cherubim rose upward. These were the same living beings I had seen beside the Kabar River. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved with them. When they lifted their wings to fly, the wheels stayed beside them. When the cherubim stopped, the wheels stopped. When they flew upward, the wheels rose up. For the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the door, notice, from the door of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. As I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple, and the glory of the Lord of Israel hovered above them. What Ezekiel is describing is very interesting. What he's describing is how the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. 
It's leaving the temple. The, 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 remember, the temple represented the very presence of God. And, and what Ezekiel is describing is how the presence of God left the temple. How it left the temple. So what I want to do is, for the rest of our time is talk about what causes the glory of God to leave. What causes the glory, the presence of God to leave? Because that's essentially what he's describing in both these visions. That the glory of God has left. That the glory of God no longer is dwelling with the people. And, and, and my application is, what happens? How does the presence, how does the glory of God leave us? Why does it leave us? Why aren't we experiencing the glory and the presence of the Lord more in our lives? Well, I think Ezekiel speaks to that. So there's three things here that I want to look at. There may be more, but I think there's three things that causes the glory or the presence of God to leave us. There are times where God will basically say, I'm out of here. That's not a good thing. But there's three things. Let's look at this. The first one is when we refuse to listen. When we refuse to listen, the glory of God, the presence of God leaves. Notice what he says in Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, stand up, son of man, said the voice. I want to speak with you. The Spirit came into me as he spoke, and he, he set me on my feet. I listened carefully to his words, and he says this. Remember, this is in that passage of Scripture where Ezekiel's being commissioned by God for his ministry. And he says, listen, here's your mission. Son of man, he says, I am sending you to a nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. They are stubborn and hard-hearted, but I am sending you to them uh, I'm, I'm sending you to say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or refuse to listen, for remember, they are rebels. At least they will know that they have a prophet among them. And I think just a parallel, as we think about Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus did the same thing. Jesus went and he spoke to the people. He, he brought the good news to the people. And there were some years they just wouldn't listen. They just wouldn't listen. Their ears were closed. But one of the common themes of the Old Testament prophets, when you come to Isaiah, you come to Jeremiah, you come to Ezekiel, the prophets are crying out. The minor prophets are crying out. They're crying out to repent. They're crying out to listen. They're crying out to say, God wants to speak to you. And over and over and over, God's people say, I don't want to hear what He has to say. I don't want to hear it. You see, the people, it says here, became stubborn and hard-hearted. And Ezekiel was told the people wouldn't listen. And note the contrast. Ezekiel is exactly the opposite of the people. Ezekiel says, I listened carefully to his words. But the people had no ear. They had no ear. God's purpose in sending Ezekiel was not only to warn them, uh, but he was to give the people no excuse so they could never say, no one warned us, no one cried out, no one spoke to us, no one told us that this judgment was coming. Ezekiel was basically the witness. God says, my servant Ezekiel was there crying out, crying out day and night, and you wouldn't listen. In other words, he's saying they could never come to a place and say, we never had a chance. They had a chance. But they rejected it. Here's the principle that I think I want you to see. When people stop listening, God leaves the temple. When people stop listening, God leaves the temple. There's a point in our Christian lives 
when God will stop speaking to you. Uh, there's a principle, I think, that's, that's weighed out in Scripture, and, it, and, and it, 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 it goes like this. Light begets light. That when God reveals something to you, uh, maybe it's about something you need to change in your life, something you need, you need to take seriously, a sin you need to confess, uh, whatever it is, a truth you need to believe, whatever it is, God brings that truth to your heart. And you come to a point where you begin to wrestle with God. Do I believe that? Do I, do I acknowledge that? Will I accept that? Will I do that? And God says, that we're going we're gonna to settle this. This is going to be it. Until we settle this, we're going to go no further. Some of you know what that is in your life. Some of you are wrestling with that right now in your life. Maybe God has called to mind a sin in your life, a, a, a pattern in your life that needs to be changed, an addiction, an attitude that you have. Maybe it's a behavior. But you know that God has brought you to a point and challenged you with this over and over and over. And you've said someday, one day, maybe, whenever. And, and you've just put it off. And I just want to tell you, there is a point where you can put God off so much and one day God will just walk away and say, when you're ready to deal with this, I'll be back. That's awful serious business. That's awful serious. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1. He says, since they thought thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be. Be done. In other words, what Paul's saying in Romans, he says it twice. He says, there's a point where God will walk away. His glory will leave. His presence will go from you. If you don't want to listen, God will stop speaking. And when God stops speaking into your life, that's a terrible thing. So that's the first thing. What will make the presence of God go? When you stop listening. When you stop taking His Word and say, God, speak to my heart. Show me. Secondly, when we rely upon idols. Notice the second thing that's going on here. They're relying on idols. Ezekiel 5, verse 11. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I will cut you off completely. I will show you no pity at all because you have defiled my temple with your vile images and detestable sins. A third of your people will die in the city from disease and famine. A third of them will be slaughtered by the enemy outside the city walls. And I will scatter a third to the winds, chasing them with the sword. How bad had it gotten in Israel? How bad had it gotten? Well, this is how bad it's gotten. Go down to verse, uh, or to chapter 8. He brings Ezekiel to show the, show Ezekiel, kind of give him a picture of what's taking place in the temple, God's temple, God's place. What's taking place there? And this is what he says. Then he brought me into the inner courtyard of the Lord's temple at the entrance to the sanctuary between the entry room and the bronze altar. There were about 25 men with their backs to the sanctuary of the Lord. They were facing east, bowing low to the ground, worshiping the sun. So here they are in the temple with their backs facing the presence of where God's presence would be. They're facing the sun and they're worshiping the sun in God's temple. That's what's taking place. Do you imagine that? What was one of the first commands? You'll know other idols before me. Here they are in God's place with their backs to the presence of God. 
bowing down to the sun god within his temple. Because Israel had pursued these idols rather than pursuing God, because they had gone after these false gods, they were suffering the curses of the covenant. If you read, you can write this down, Leviticus 26. You can go there and look at it later. These are the curses of the covenant. This basically says that when you walk away from me, when you begin to worship the, go- the gods of the lands, this is what's going to take place. And it did. It did. Here's the principle. When people stop trusting, God leaves the temple. When they stop trusting him. Now, we, we don't worship the sun god. We, we don't have idols in our, in our homes. We don't have these little trinkets. I hope you don't. I mean, you know, I don't know what you do. But, but I mean, I hope you don't. We, but we have our modern idols. So what is an idol? Essentially, what is it? See, we, we got to get past the images and the ideas of what we have, our idols, the physical appearances of them, and get to the point of saying, what is it? Really, what is the essence behind an idol? What is behind an idol? Well, an idol is anyone or anything that we place our trust in other than God. In other words, we, and, and by the way, this can be a good thing. We can make good things idols. Uh, when good things become ultimate things, they become idols. When a good thing, like wanting to have a family, become ultimate things, like my family is it. This is what I live for. It's, if my, it's the only thing I live for. It's my, my life revolves. And, and you say, well, how do I know if I have an idol? When it's threatened or when it's challenged or when it might be taken, a, taken, a, taken away, you say, my life is over. I have no reason to live. You've just made something, it could be a good thing, an idol, an ultimate thing. Idols are simply this, they're God replacements. They could be in relationships uh, because you maybe say, I'm going to find in this person my ultimate source of security and significance and satisfaction. I'm going to find it in this person. Or it could be pursuits, accomplishments, rewards, power, recognition, honors, fame, success. It could be any of those things. None of those things are wrong. But if they become the ultimate, uh, ultimate uh, pursuit, possessions or wealth. So the question is, is there someone or something that you must have besides God in your life to be happy, to find fulfillment, to find purpose, to find security? If your answer is yes, you're on your way to worshiping an idol. Now, here's what I want you to see. When we will not renounce our idols, God will leave. The presence of God will leave. And essentially, it makes sense. Because doesn't it make sense that when we say to God, I don't need you, I don't rely upon you, I don't trust you, that God says, fine, I have other things to do. Here's the third thing that causes the presence, the glory of God to leave. We flock to faults shepherds let me read this ezekiel 13 then this message came to me from the lord son of man prophesied against the false prophets of israel who are inventing their own prophecies say to them listen to the word of the lord this is what the sovereign lord says what sorrow awaits the false prophets who are following their own imaginations and they they have seen nothing at all 
You bring shame on me among my people for a few handfuls of barley or a piece of bread. And notice what he says, by lying to my people who love to listen to lies, you kill those who should not die and you promise life to those who should not live. See, the people didn't want to hear what Ezekiel had to say. So what did they do? They went out and they found people that would say what they wanted to hear. They surrounded themselves with prophets from God, so they claim. And they, then the prophets from God, so they claim, said the things the people wanted to hear. They found their own prophets. Sometimes in our lives, you know what we need to hear? We need to hear the hard things. We need to hear the warnings. We need to hear the truth. Even if it breaks us. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Do you have somebody that can say the hard things to you? That can look you in the eye, stand with you toe to toe and say, hey, this is wrong. I see this trend. I see this attitude. I see this going on. This is not right. This is not good. Do you, have, do you have a heart where you can allow the Word of God to speak your heart and, and show you where you've got things going on that are wrong? Are you willing to listen? David put it this way in Psalm 139. He said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. David basically says, show me what's wrong. Show me what's wrong so that I can fix it. So that we can fix it. Right? That's what David was saying. So let me ask you a question. And, and maybe this is the only takeaway you'll have this weekend. If God wanted to speak His truth into your life, could He? And how would he do it? If God wanted to speak his truth into your life, could he? And how would he do it? Would you listen? Would you hear him? Here's what I've seen over the years. As I've met with many, many people in counseling, they come in. They already know that they're doing whatever they're doing and whatever behavior they have that they want. They want some justification for it. And you basically take the Word of God and say, I understand how you feel and I understand the situation you're in, but here's what God's Word says. And it's hard. It's, it's not easy. But it's true and it's right and you need to hear it. And, and they almost leave, some of them will take it to heart and they'll say, you're right. I've got to repent. I've got to turn. I've got to change. But more often, what they do is they say, that's an opinion I'll have to take it into account. Can I just say to you that when God's Word becomes an opinion and you'll have to think about it and pray about it, God has walked away. The glory of God has left. I think our response ought to be this. What did, what did Ezekiel do when the presence of God, when he first saw the presence of God? He fell on his face. He was stunned by God. We need to come to a place where God's word knocks us to our face, 
brings us to our knees. In fact, I'm suggesting that there may be some times that we ought to get on our face physically. We ought to get on our knees physically. We ought to... Listen. We have Muslims who... Faithful ones who three times a day face towards Mecca and get on their face before their God. Now, I don't agree with the God they're worshiping and how they're worshiping. But I'll tell you something. They maybe show more physical devotion to their God than we do. We might want to learn a lesson from that. If you treat God's word as advice, he will stop speaking. He will allow you to listen to the meatheads around you that will just tell, help you justify your behavior. And you'll, they'll show up and they'll say, oh, it's all right, don't worry about it. Hey, everybody has failures. You know, God wants you happy. You'll hear all that pop psychology and silliness, but there may be a time where God says, I want you to hear what I have to say. Will you listen? Because Ezekiel basically said, Ezekiel, you're going to talk to people, but they're not going to listen. But here's the one thing they will not be able to say. No one ever warned us. No one ever spoke God's Word to us. When we stop seeking and submitting to His Word, He leaves us. He leaves us with false teaching. That's nowhere to be. So if you have felt like the presence and the glory of God has left, it may be because of one of these three things, maybe a combination of all three, I don't know. But all I know is this. God is still glorious. God is still awesome. And if you're not experiencing that, the problem isn't there. The problem is here. May God help us to understand that the the temple, the God doesn't, the glory of God doesn't dwell in the temple anymore. It dwells within us. Does he? Does he dwell within us? Is he there? Or has he walked away? Would you stand with me? Father, what an amazing book. Help us, Father, to look at our lives and answer that question. If you wanted to speak to us and bring your truth into our lives, would we allow it? How would you do it? And if we even allowed you to speak your word into our life, would we hear it? Would we take it to heart? Would we obey? Some of us have heard your word. And we've taken it as an opinion. We haven't done anything. And we're at a stalemate. And we may be very close to you walking away, taking your glory, taking your presence. May we repent. May we fall on our faces. May we hear your word new and fresh. We ask this in Jesus' name.